They get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake gold. Cold blooded with the Sprouse King, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about history. I've been thinking about the maxim that history repeats itself and wondering about whether that is a foregone conclusion based on the inherent organizational structure of the universe or the consequence of the plain and simple fact, and yes, facts do exist, that the majority of our population does not know the truths and facts of history. Maybe history gets repeated because we don't learn the lessons of history and adjust our trajectories accordingly, so as to not repeat its mistakes and tragedies. My guest today is Dr. Simon Montefiore. He is the author of The Romanovs, 1613-1918, the New York Times bestseller, an epic history of the 300-year reign of the Tsars and Tsarinas of Russia. Montefiore graduated from Cambridge University with a Ph.D. He then tried his hand as a banker, journalist, and war correspondent before settling into his obvious fate as an award-winning historian of Russia and the Middle East. His book, Stalin, the Court of the Red Tsar, won the History Book of the Year Prize at the British Book Awards. Other of his books have won prizes and were on many short lists for prizes around the world. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and we are honored to have him as a guest with us today. Welcome, Dr. Montefiore, and thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. Hello, lovely to be with you. So I want to start with a review from the Financial Times that said, Romanov's makes the Game of Thrones series look like the proverbial vicar's tea party in comparison. Was that your uh, intention starting the, with starting the book? To bring um, all of yeah, the, I mean, the yeah. levels of, of um, drama and gore and sex into it? Well, yes. I mean, I, I, write, I, I write history books. I want them to be um, academically rigorous and based on new archive material. But I also want them to be readable by anybody, and even if they're not an expert on history. And so I write them to be utterly accessible. And yes, I mean, you can, you know, the, the, basic, the basic level, you can just treat this book as a, as a saga of amazing, uh, amazing family of, um, you know, uh, of, of murder and, and debauchery and, and, uh, and ambition and empire, um, sex, um, killing, uh, and, and all the things that go with um, Game of Thrones, you can, you can treat this as. But alternatively, I hope also, this is a book that explains why Russia is Russia, um, you know, what we need to know about Russia, and also as a sort of examination of power and how power works on individuals and a family. So you can take it in whatever level you like. So I want to start with a little bit about your place in the Montefiore saga, a kinder, gentler, but nonetheless as successful <laughs> as a saga. Um, you started working as a banker and then as a foreign affairs journalist and a war correspondent covering the conflicts during the fall of the Soviet Union. And I want to talk a couple points about that experience. One, if that was kind of the beginning of your road to writing this book. And also, you, you clearly weren't too shabby as a journalist. You talked your ways into some high-level level interviews in your, your late teens. Um, so I want to know where that chutzpah came from, and then what led you to leave journalism and, and go towards writing in a different yeah, way? Yeah, when I was a teenager, when I was a teenager, I interviewed Mr. Thatcher in Downing Street, and I took my way into Downing Street. And that was an amazing experience. So, yes, I've, I've done some fascinating interviews. When I was a war correspondent, I, I spent a lot of time with Shevard Nadzi, the president of Georgia, and many of the presidents and warlords of those um, war-torn republics. 
So um, I had many adventures actually on uh, in the wars in the nineties, and um, and in between before that, really, I was a bank, I was an investment banker, believe it or not, which was um, a, a career that I really wasn't cut out for, but was fascinating. I come from a banking family. I so was going to say it's in your lineage. It. it was in my lineage, but you know the fascination with Russia also is in my lineage because. You know, the Montefiore family uh, descended from uh, a great 19th century Victorian um, titan and magnate called Sir Moses Montefiore, who was a, a sort of Jewish um, tycoon who, who was friends with Queen Victoria and went to Russia and actually met Tsar Nicholas uh, I to intercede for the Jews of the Russian Empire. So I kind of was brought up with this background. Um, and always with this connection to the to the um, the Romanov dynasty. So I have a I actually have a I actually have a print up on my wall of Moses Montefiore meeting Emperor Nicholas the First, who was the sort of quintessential Romanov emperor. So yes, I, I've, I'd always had this connection with this book. And also when I was travelling around in the wars in Chechnya, um, in Grozny, in, in in Tbilisi, in Georgia, and and other ones too. I really saw the Russian Empire being built or rebuilt or falling apart, as it was then, I guess, um, from the bottom up. And I saw amazing things. I was shot at. I, I, I was lucky to survive. I, I, was, I was both terrified and totally thrilled by my adventures there. And in a way, when you've seen that, you understand um, uh, how empire really works. Um, on the back streets and mountains of the Caucasus. And that's one of the best ways to understand it. So when I came back from there, I started to write my history books. And I started, in effect, to work on this book, um, The Romanovs. And ever since then, I've been writing books about power and how power works and how Russian power works. I was going to ask you about that, and I want to talk about that in a little more depth later about the process of writing The Romanovs. And I, well, you mentioned uh, Moses Montefiore, and I had read that you hadn't really learned about that line of your lineage until you were an adult and doing a documentary on Spain. Yes, well, we, we you know the, the, one of the interesting things is that we never knew where the Montefiores really came from. We, they, it started in Italy in the sort of 16th century, and we didn't know before that. But when I was making a documentary about Spain, we discovered that we were descended from a Spanish family and a Spanish-Portuguese family that had actually been um, un, uh, exposed as secret Jews after the expulsion of, of the Jews from Spain and had then been burnt alive um, in the marketplace of Mexico City by the Spanish Inquisition. Of course, Mexico was then New Spain, um, the, the, you know, the, what, part of the Spanish Empire. And so my ancestors were um, girls who were secret Jews and who, who were burned alive, naked, um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the square of Mexico City, praying al aloud in Hebrew. So that was a very um, touching and poignant and heartbreaking image for me to have. And it explained some of our missing family history. And had you heard a number of stories about your family history growing up? I know you visited Jerusalem quite a bit as a child. Had you visited Russia? Did you know yes. that aspect of your family? Um, yes, because my mother's family also were, were Russians, and they, they, they were sort of Russian Jews living in great poverty, but great learning in the, in the shtetls and villages of Lithuania and Poland and, and parts of the Russian Empire. So 
So that was the other side of, of us. So I've always had this kind of big connection to Russia. So, so that was part of it. Of course, Moses Montefiore, um, in his day, was the most famous Jewish man in the world in Victorian times. And he, you know, that's why there were many institutions in America, for example, you know, Montefiore Hospital in Brooklyn, for example, um, which is still named after him. And he was a fascinating character in many, many ways. But, you know, one of the interesting things he did, apart from going to Russia to see the Tsar, to try and improve the lot of the, of the um, Jews there, one of the things he did was also to go to Jerusalem six times and to found the new city of Jerusalem. And his Montefiore windmill is still there. And so, in a way, that connection led to my book, Jerusalem, the Biography, which is the sort of only full history of Jerusalem that's around. And um, so... In a way, these two books, the Romanovs and Jerusalem, both come from, come from family history in a way. In an interview with Charlie Rose, you said Jerusalem is the history of the world. So I was thinking, if Jerusalem is the history of the world, what is Russia? Ah, Russia, well, you know, Russia is, Russia is a sixth of the world's surface, or it was when the Romanovs ruled it. But Russia is also an alternative um, strain of history, an alternative thread to the Western narrative. It's, the, it's another alternative, in a way, as foreign as that of the Chinese thread, for example. And, but it's always been crossed increasingly throughout history with America. And this book has many of those connections. You know, for example, you know, the, you know, Russian czars, the Russian czars actually backed the Union side, for example, in the, um, in the American Civil War, which is interesting, and then bought, um, and then, and then bought Alaska, um, the, the, the serfs in Russia were, were liberated at exactly the same time um, as the slaves by Lincoln and so on. So there were many connections. And of course, in the 20th century, the rivalry became much more concentrated into superpower rivalry. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to do in this book, incidentally, is, you know, yes, this is a history of Russia. This is a history of, of power in Russia. This is a history of czars and the Romanov dynasty. But it also follows it right up through Stalin and Lenin to Putin today and to Donald Trump. And so all of this um, is, you know, is, 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 is the reason that you know, the Romanovs is now a very relevant story and very important story, because you have, a, you have a president who wants to be an American czar. Well, I was thinking about that this morning for America. The timing couldn't be more relevant. And to understand uh, Russia, so we can understand our, our history with it. So you, through the book, you follow the lives of 20 monarchs in several regions over three centuries. And you start at the beginning of the book with two boys in a time of troubles. And you start with the beginning and the end. And I'm thinking now with your writing that book, um, was it, was Romanov's also the beginning and the end that you had thought about writing that, but in between you had to write all the other books, Catherine the Great and Young Stalin and the other books to swing yes. back around to write this in the manner with which you, you really wanted to? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, you, um, you, it, 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 you, you have to be at a certain level in your career to write books like the Romanov's. Um, it's a hell of a challenge. Uh, you know, actually, though, though one thinks, oh, and here's the, you know, the, 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 the title, the Romanovs, you think, gosh, there are millions of books on that subject. In fact, this is really one of the very few um, full his narrative histories of the entire dynasty covering everything, you know, family, um, power, foreign affairs, war, art, literature. Um, it's all in here. 
And um, of course, it's, it, you know, it's a hell of a challenging thing to write, which is why no one's written it before. And I was also very lucky you know, in the archives that I managed to find lots of new materials. But this really is the ultimate book. And of course, you know, I, I really envisaged it because I thought you know, America, America and Russia are in such a sort of strange place now. This, this, is, this is essential now for understanding our world, for understanding um, the, the state of international affairs. But during the course of writing, you know, Donald Trump was elected. We had, this, we had the, the, the sort of ascendancy of President Putin and the strange, the extraordinary and strange situation that you have in America um, at the moment. And of course, all of this makes this book absolutely, um, absolutely relevant. And I couldn't have imagined that it would be so timely. I had also read that you you had a, a specific intention. You wanted to blend the personal and the political into a single narrative. And although, as you mentioned, there were so many other books about aspects of the history, there wasn't one that really combined these two elements. No, that's true. I mean, um, you know, I think we're seeing more and more. It used to be kind of unfashionable. We used, we used to have to almost apologize for telling personal histories. I mean, I was very inspired by the books of people like Robert Massey and um, you know, great, great narrative historians who covered Russia. Um, but, but actually, we don't need any more to apologize for the, per- you know, mixing the personal and the, and the political. We've realized now that politics is very personal. And in, um, in politics, uh, especially in autocratic systems, the personal is always political and the political is always personal. And everything is to do with proximity to the autocrat, to the czar, um, to the president. Um, you, you know, you, the moment you have um, a very, a very, um, a very czar-like autocratic president, uh, for better or for worse. And, you know, do you I mean, still think, think that's anyone... a question to be determined? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, and I don't think anyone would now question the fact that personality is everything in politics. As, you know, it's so it's now so visible to us. Um, the flaws of personality are so are so clear and. So, you know, I think that this book, which, which yeah, yes, blends the personal and, and the political, where I look, I look very much at the love lives of the Romanovs, for example. But, you know, the sex lives of the Romanovs was so, was so political at all times. When you look at the great political correspondences and, and romantic correspondences in this book, which this book is made up of, say, Nicholas and Alexandra or um, Catherine the Great and her great minister, Prince Potemkin, who were also lovers. Um, or Alexander II and his mistress, future wife, Katya. Um, you know, all these are very sexual, very uninhibited, outrageous. No one expected them ever to be published. They were, they were always secret, private correspondences. And when you read them, the amazing thing is that sexual positions are interspersed with political discussion um, seamlessly. So, um, so one realizes there that you know, everything close to the autocrat is is extremely relevant to to us, but it also makes great reading. And, and I, mean, I thought it was so interesting. Know, absolutely, and and how the women that you depicted navigated their power throughout all of those balancing all of those elements. Yes, I mean the women are really important in this book. In fact, I mean, so it's one of the strangest um, phenomena of, of Russian history that the most chauvinistic country in Europe. Um, was actually ruled by about a hundred for about a hundred years by women, and some of these women were wild and vicious and really do belong in Game of Thrones, like the like the dwarf tossing 
dwarf, uh, dwarf fighting um, Empress Anna, who really is a grotesque, monstrous. Um, but then you have astonishingly impressive women like Catherine the Great. And, you know, she had the challenge of being a single woman. She'd murdered her husband, in effect, um, and overthrown him. Um, you have a single woman like Catherine the Great who has to who has to navigate how to keep power which, to which she has no actual legal right, and yet also is a woman who is a passionate woman, a sexually uninhib- uninhibited woman, and how she has to have, has to um, deal with these two sides of herself, the political and the personal, and how she solves it is to make her sex life public, to to make the role of her lover into an official position, adjutant general, and. Um, she tries to solve this. She tries to, she tries to prevent gossip by having it completely open. Of course, it doesn't at all. It shocks Europe. But it worked for her. And when she got the right lover, um, like Potemkin, who was you know, probably the greatest prime minister, chief minister, uh, almost co-czar of the entire 300 years, and you have someone like him ruling with you, um, gosh, I mean, he is an enormous help to her. In fact, it's with him that she manages to to conquer the Ukraine, to annex Crimea, um, to move Russia into the Caucasus and the Near East. So, you know, when it works well, um, it's brilliant. Oftentimes, she gave, she allowed her lovers no political importance at all. They were, they weren't allowed to interfere in politics. So, you know, there are no rules, but she, she managed to, to um, rule brilliantly, and she was such an astonishing and, um, and talented woman. In fact, Angelina Jolie is making a movie of this story right now, which is exciting, based on my, based on my first history book, Catherine the Great and Potemkin. So I want to talk a little bit about your systematic approach to your history books, because especially as I read this one, you know, it's a 700-plus page-turner. And as I read, I thought, oh, my gosh, number one, the intellect that it takes to, to understand all of this and all the relationships and then put it down to paper, but just the logistics of navigating the facts, because I know as a historian, it's extremely important to you to write an unbiased account and, and that you're after the truth and the facts. And so how did you develop a system to, one, do the research, and then, two, put it all into a organized manner that was so intriguing? Well, I think and the first thing is that um, researching these books um, is a bit like being a, a czar or prime minister yourself. Um, you've got to um, you've got to take a view on every single war, every single major decision. Of course, the great thing is that as a historian, you have hindsight. <laughs> you know what didn't work and what did. But nonetheless, you have to take a view on, on all policy. So it is, it is a massive enterprise. And then you've got, you know, the whole Romanov family, um, all the relations, all the ministers, and all of them are writing stuff down in official papers, but also in diaries and love letters and so on. So, yeah, I mean, it is, it is a nightmarish challenge intellectually to do these books. That's the first thing. The second thing is my rule is to always approach these subjects, particularly if they're well-known, like Stalin, I read a book on, or, or Catherine the Great, or Nicholas and Alexander and Rasputin, to approach these subjects um, as if you, hadn't, you have no um, inherited um, prejudices, as if you had no conventional wisdom. And just to go back to the sources, the original sources, wherever possible, and just decide how things worked and what you really think of these characters and how power worked. So and oftentimes, yeah, and oftentimes it's completely different. 
because most history books just are actually, I think, very bad and just literally repeat what they've read in other history books over and over again. And I try not to do that. Well, I was going to say, in Young Stalin, you came across a whole new treasure trove of information that had never been public before and were able to write that way. Was was that similar with the Romanovs, or were you... Yes, yes. yes. I mean, um, in Young Stalin, I was incredibly lucky, because you know, Young Stalin, we'd always believed... This is a classic. Young Stalin is a classic example. You know, we'd always been told by... Trotsky, basically, that um, Stalin was a nobody before the revolution. And no historian, even historians of Stalin, had not at that point um, really challenged this notion. We just, amazingly, we just took Trotsky, who's a, who's a, he was a brilliant writer, but a famous liar, um, took him completely on trust and just repeated this over and over again. Stalin was Mr. Revolution, Stalin did nothing. But when I looked into this, when I started to, to study Stalin, the cause of the Red Tsar, my first book on Stalin in power, I started to realize that Stalin's life before 1917 was extraordinary, in fact, and exceptional, um, and that he led an amazing life of adventure, um, having many names, um, you know, traveling all the time, never staying still, fathering children everywhere, having an enormous number of mistresses, um, taking part in, um, in bank robberies and so on. So Stalin really was an extraordinary character. It was, it was no surprise that he turned out to be a very strange and extraordinary leader. So similarly with this, there are many things in here that I found out that were that, 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 were, that are new and exciting. And also there's a lot of stuff that, you know, is, is, is also a work of synthesis. I've, you know, I've read all the, the latest research on everything to do the Romanovs. And so not everything is completely new, but much of it is. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, Alexander II was the Tsar who liberated the Serbs um, in 1861. He was probably the most attractive of the, of the Romanov Tsars after Catherine the Great, perhaps. And he was genial, he was tall, he was handsome, he loved women. Um, he was liberal by, by tendency. You know, he also, there was also, he also had this great love affair, as I mentioned, with his mistress, Princess Katya, who, who he met when she was sort of 18 and he was about 40. And they embarked on this 20-year passionate love affair. And um, I was very fortunate because um, very recently, about 3,000 letters between them had come back to the Russian archives. Now, this had happened because these letters um, had been taken by his, his, his wife, um, as she became his, his former mistress. When he was assassinated, she took them abroad to Paris. And they were in Paris um, for 100 years or so. And at the same time, the Rothschild family, uh, this isn't in non sequitur, the Rothschild family, um, its archives of its bank had been captured by Stalin in 1945 because they were in Berlin. And they were taken back to Moscow. So about 15 years ago, um, Rothschild said, said to the Russians, Do you, we've bought the correspondence of Alexander II and, and Katya. Do you want to swap it for our bank archives? And the Russians agreed. So this swap happened. And so, that, so all these letters have barely been read by anybody. Now, this correspondence is, as I said earlier, partly very political, um, partly very romantic, and it's also enormously sexual, outrageously sexual. These two had the most outrageous sexual relationship. Um, they are the most sexually explicit letters ever written by a statesman, politician, from Roman times till now, there's nothing like it. 
and I and I and I mean when I read them I was amazed. I when I when I went home every evening to read them to my wife, she was absolutely shocked. She said, "You're making this up," but they were they're real and they're all in there. And there are sort of sexual positions they're talking about in the 1860s that I thought hadn't been invented till about two years ago, but there they are. So this is a sort of fascinating material that um, that I was lucky enough to find in this book. Well, and just comes live on any page you open, especially in that part of the book. And you got you didn't even throw Napoleon into the mix yet, <laughs> their their relationship. Yeah. Yes, I mean Napoleon and Alexander the First was was you know was was the great sort of duel of um, of the early nineteenth century. And um, of course, Alexander the First, you know, was, a, was, was another fascinating character. He's hugely underestimated because Tolst- um, Trotsky, uh, sorry, because Tolstoy, not Trotsky, because Tolstoy said. He was a useless man. And Napoleon also said he was a useless liberty gibbet. So as a result, we've just taken those two, um, those two sources, if you like, on trust. In fact, Alexander I, um, yes, he was defeated by Napoleon. Yes, he was outclassed by Napoleon. But who wouldn't have been? I mean, Napoleon was the greatest, one of the greatest men of all time. Um, but in fact, after losing Moscow, which was burnt by Napoleon, after the French invasion, um, Alexander I recovered and created the coalition that fought its way all the way from Moscow to Paris, where he destroyed the great Napoleon. So he was an incredibly impressive character. And by the way, you know, people, um, the, the, the Russian leaders who came after were very aware of this. You know, when the American ambassador congratulated Joseph Stalin for taking Berlin in 1945, Stalin, quick as a flash, replied, yes, but Alexander I took power. So what do you think were the biggest factors that allowed this particular dynasty to rise to power and maintain it for so long? Well, I think there are various answers. I mean, one is that um, they founded in a state, I mean, they they, they became Tsars at a time of total state failure and um, nation failure. When, when Russia was at its lowest ebb in all of history. So, so in many ways, um, they were from the start, they had to be a, a military regime, and they always were. They never changed that. And before that, before them, um, the Russian class had really been kind of semi-religious characters, more sort of half-priest, half sort of pontifical characters. But afterwards, after 1613, all the Romanov stars and the Romanov court was really a military headquarters, run like a military headquarters. And actually, Russia's been run that way ever since. You know, under the Bolsheviks, they inherited that. And of course, today, you know, it's, it's run like a military headquarters. And so that's one of the strengths of, of decision-making in a court like that. And um, the second thing they did was to, was to make an alliance with the nobility, which was clever. And the, the, the nobility shared in the prizes of empire building. The third thing is that they had space to expand, and they were extremely lucky that they had um, declining powers around them, Poland to the west, uh, you know, Sweden, uh, they had the Ottomans and the Crimean Tartars to the south, and then to the, and then to the east, they had the vastness of Siberia with really no major power, just, just some mainly Islamic carnates left over from the, from the Mongols. So, so they had space to expand once they'd recovered and the, the Russian ruling class shared in this amazing, um, this amazing fiesta of conquest. And, um, and right until the 1890s, and in fact, right into World War I, 
you know, the Russians were still trying to expand. I mean, if Nicholas II had just lasted a few more months in 1917, Russia would have, would have, would have um, received the greatest bonanza of territory it had had for a long time. It would have, it would have received um, Istanbul, much of that present-day Turkey, bits of Iraq, even Jerusalem. And he only had to last till, the, till 1918. But obviously, um, the regime collapsed before that. You talk about the decadence of Imperial Russia at its apex, and, and along with that, the history of brutality and torture and loyalty and pride. The mix of those factors creates the drama in your book and also in, in the dynasty. Was there anything about that that surprised you or having done the research you had already on Russia? Is that just so embedded within their political culture? Well, I mean, I think it is, in some ways it's embedded. I mean, you read this, um, this book, and whether you're dealing with the 18th century, the 19th century, early 20th century, um, if you take away the sort of the huge techno- technical changes that, that we've had between now and then, um, there's an amazing similarity with the way, the way the Russian court worked and works today. And in fact, The Economist magazine said that. They said, in their review, they said, God, it's astonishing reading the Romanovs because you know, the inner circle of these czars was identical and worked identically to the court of Vladimir Putin right now. So in some ways, it's highly embedded in Russian history, um, the culture. Uh, but, but yes, I mean, I was just amazed by the excesses, even I was, because I didn't know him. When I looked into Peter the Great, for example, I mean, you know, he was exceptional in every way. Uh, he was just an amazing character. He was the greatest of all the czars, probably... You know, he ranked up there with the greatest statesman of all time. But, but the way he ruled was extraordinary. I mean, the drinking for a start. I mean, you know, three of his chief ministers actually died of alcohol poisoning. During, during his wild dinners, um, ministers in the government appeared naked riding on bears, um, wearing bishops' hats. Um, naked girls, dwarfs, giants, all of them were sort of jumping out of pies and um, dancing around, um, people stabbed each other in the middle of these dinners, and, and one of the, one, what somebody was once killed in these dinners. Um, it was complete anarchy. It was, it was, um, it was a surreal. And again, you know, some of these scenes belong in sort of Game of Thrones as much as, as in a history book. But this was the way Russia ran. It was all about whatever Tsar wanted to do, and power was so concentrated in his hand that Peter the Great. For who who did everything, both for his own personal taste and always for a political purpose too, he wanted to show that it, he could do anything. He could change the world um, of Russia as he wished, and that's partly what these wild orgies demonstrated. So yes, I mean the, the excesses were extraordinary. Um, the sexual adventurism, the decadence. Um, I think people will be amazed by the cruelty and the pleasure seeking of these people. And that relationship of extravagance and showmanship and power. It's ringing some bells of familiarity <laughs> for yes. me this morning. I mean, I mean, so we're gonna... yes, I mean, the showmanship is so important. And yeah. you know, the, the show of power, the show of defiance all the time. I mean, that's why, you know, just to go back, I mean, Trump is a very, very un-American figure. He is a figure who belongs um, partly in a sort of, in a South American cordillo uh, you know, South American junta, um, there's something very Peronist about him, um, referring to the Argentine dictator. But at the same time, he's an American czar. 
And you know, he wants to be an American. So, and that's really what his obsession with Russia is about. We, we don't really know what connections we, he has. Maybe we'll find out one day um, with Russia. But I think it, at essence, there's a psychological attraction there. And what he's attracted to is the idea, the plenitude and the pomp of this power. So there's partly a, a contempt for sort of the, ten, the, 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 you know, the, the weak, the, the weak de- democratic statesmen of today who can do nothing without consulting their, their parliaments or their legislatures. Um, and compared to these swaggering gangster-like um, rulers of Russia who can do anything, can order assassinations, missile, missiles are dispatched to Syria, um, you know, who can, who can invade Crimea. These are sort of rulers who rule, who still rule. Um, like like disasters of old, I think that is Trump, you know that that is that is Donald Trump's dream, and that's part of his attraction. But you know the problem with being a czar, as he's now discovering, is that though it looks great fun being having all the power in a system that has no checks and balances, if you want to rule with no checks and balances, you also have no defence yourself. You have no boundaries to defend yourself, and that is why all Russian leaders are so aware of security and why they're, they're all so, so utterly vigilant at all times because, because it works both, supreme power works both ways. So we're going to take a short break and then I want to come back. We'll talk a little bit more about the Romanov dynasty and then focus towards the end of the show on Putin and the Russia of today. This is Ellie. Okay, great. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking and I'm speaking with Dr. Montefiore about his book, the Romanovs, 1613 to 1918, and the bizarre uh, similarities of maybe our, uh, our current dynasty that we've got, got beginning in America today. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, Ketchum, non-commercial, listener-supported radio. All right, we're back. So I want to, before we jump into the now, I want to talk a little bit more about the then and um, your experience writing the book. Did you have a favorite character and a least favorite character by the end? Yes. I mean, I find, um, I found Peter the Great the most, one of the most exciting to write about. I mean, he's just so wild. I also loved Alexander II for his, for his uh, passion, post passion and his, his, his unexpected um, uh, sexual uh, liberation that, I, that one found in his letters. I mean, another emperor that I loved was the Emperor Paul, again, because he was so, uh, he was so mad and so, um, and, and so dangerous. And his inconsistency, again, reminds me, um, just to jump to present times, of, pres- of your President Trump today. And you know, the, the one thing that got you killed as, a, as, an Ameri- as, as a Russian czar was inconsistency. And um, that's what happened to Emperor Paul in 1801. And I found amazing new evidence of um, the conspiracy and how it worked, which is all in the book. And he was actually beaten to death by his own courtiers, um, backed by his own um, son. And in fact, you know, the Romanov family is the most extraordinary family altogether. Um, so... You know, I love writing about all of them. I mean, this is a family where, um, where in one sense, it's an ordinary family of mothers and fathers and daughters and sons. But it's a family where sons have their own fathers murdered, where Peter the Great murdered his own son, tortured him to death, um, where Catherine the Great had her husband effectively murdered. So, so this is just a family saga with a difference. Um, and yeah. I guess, 
And also a saga that's closely linked to your family. I saw Queen Victoria's name (laughs) pop up quite frequently in the saga of the Romanovs and also in your family history. Yes, I mean, Montefiore was, Montefiore was, um, you know, my my ancestor was was probably the sort of Jewish person closest to, to Queen Victoria and you know, she she um she admired him greatly. Um, he, he he's you know he's the most intriguing character. But I suppose you know in terms of in, in terms of character, I mean, when you you've got to get to the last ones, and that's um you know Nicholas and Alexandra. I mean, they are they are actually, of course, they're a mixture. In some ways, they're they're a rather middle class. They resemble a middle class um, family with a rather romantic marriage. They were always faithful to each other, and so that has made them kind of romantic heroes, partly because of their tragic end, of course. Um, so many of the histories of Nicholas Alexander and Rasputin really kind of concentrated on them and, and, and sort of painted them as a rather bourgeois, middle-class, romantic marriage with a tragic child who was ill. But actually, I think this is a huge mistake. And my approach to them is to treat them as political, um, as political figures. Um, and, and also to look more closely at their marriage and to sort of see how blinkered it was, how narrow, how narrow-minded, um, and to look at their characters. They always regarded themselves as utterly political, as statesmen, as, as, as monarchs, as holy monarchs. And it's very interesting. I mean, people may be shocked by my approach to them, but I think, I sh- I think I've got closer to a fair portrayal of them than anyone else so far. Well, well, and a more reasonable one. I wanted to ask you what you thought led uh, modern Russia to the special treatment of Nicholas and Alexander. Because if you look back at history and the history you've written about, so many women and children were brutally killed. That was not an exception in any way. So why the the reaction to their murders being so different and then the treatment of them later? Yes, I think it's sort of, I'll tell you why. I think that sort of, I think the murder of, um, I mean, there hadn't really been women and children killed for a long time in the, in, the, in, the, in the Romanov family or in any of these families. Of course, there'd been assassinations and so on, but it was just the murder of those five children, I think. And be, by be, Lenin because it was that family, because Stalin certainly didn't have any problem with assassinating women. No, I think the thing is, I think the thing is about it, it was really the, it was really the moment that we realized um, that the 20th century was going to be an appalling century of blood where civilians, women, children would be killed um, for their race, for their class, um, with, with no regard whatsoever to, to, um, to morality, to kindness, in fact. And, you know, um, and I think this is the event that really made everyone realize. Of course, World War One was going on, which was just an appalling massacre. But they were soldiers, and this is the moment when the 20th century swerved, and we realized that we were we were dealing with a new barbarism, and especially in these ideological regimes, the, the the Bolsheviks, the communists first, and then the, and then the Nazis, of course. And so I think that's why it's such a, a terrible moment, and the and it's the killing of these innocent children that has made them um, important in the, um, in the 21st century in Russia as holy saints, as holy sufferers. Because though Nicholas and Alexander were in many ways utterly dreadful as rulers, and they were vicious anti-Semites, they were, you know, uh, Nicholas II, as I was showing the book, you know, was ordering 
you know, thousands of sort of rebels to be hanged and shot during the uh, putting down the 1905 revolution. I mean, in fact, I mean, some of his memos are, are not that different from Lenin's, you know. Um, so, you know, that, that brutal ruthlessness with people who they, who oppose them, Alexandra's uh, vindictive, uh, vindictive malice towards anyone who um, didn't recognize her as Putin. I mean, you know, they were not attractive figures. And again and again, their, their anti-Semitism is striking. And yet, once they were overthrown, once they abdicated, um, they showed real um, grace under pressure. And you have to admire that. And I, I was moved by that, even though they spent their evenings reading, and Nicholas spent their evenings reading um, not just Tolstoy novels, but also the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the notorious anti-Semitic tract. He spent his evenings reading that to his children. Um, but nonetheless, you know, as they lost everything, they showed great dignity. And, you know, and the way they died, you know, it, it is heartbreaking. And in this book, I must say, you know, I, I, I cried as I wrote those scenes because it is the most heartbreaking, terrible botched execution I've ever, you know, of all of history. Instead of taking one second to execute them, it took about 30 minutes of mayhem um, to kill them. And even then the girls weren't dead. And you know why? Because they were wearing what was in effect bulletproof vests. They'd sewn the Romanov diamonds, that huge cache of diamonds which they carried with them secretly. They'd sewn it into their underwear, not realizing that when they were going to be, when they were about to be shot. And when they were shot, the bullets would bounce off the diamonds. And so it made it much harder to kill them. And that, that was, that was part, at least partly to blame for the terrible um, slaughter, the chaos of that slaughter, which is just terrible to write and heartbreaking to read. And also maybe because they're closest to us in the timeline, and so there's more a sense of, of reality and connection to those characters, and we've yes, heard so much about yes, them. We have, yes, and we have photographs of them. And... You know, Anastasia, for example, was such a great character. She was a sort of family, um, she was a family comedian. She's made it and to Disney. She was, she's made it to Disney. And, you know, she, she, was, she, was, she was always played the funny characters in the, in the family um, theatricals. And, you know, in fact, she, you know, she, did, she, I think, did the first selfie, which I've put in the book, just, just to show how modern and how, and how um, zany she could be. And... Um, so, yes, they're, they're wonderful characters, some of these girls. And, of course, one of the strange things which I tell in the story is how um, they had such, they had their first real romances in captivity with guards. And um, uh, one of them, Maria, was extremely naughty and playful and pretty. And she, she kissed, she was caught kissing some of these Bolshevik guards. Um, and her mother and sisters were, were very shocked by this because her mother was a terrible prig. And... Um, and very prim, and um, so so um, so they are they're a wonderful character, and we get to know them. But also, they serve a purpose because the Orthodox Church is has, has been for a long time in Russian history and under the Tsars, and is again under Putin, really an extension of the autocracy. And you know, they need heroes, and they have they have they have canonized the um, the Tsar and his family, and so. That they, they've made that a part of orthodox politics, if you like, in Russia. Um, and Putin is very much in alliance with a sort of the conservative orthodox church. So all of this is, is complicated, but very important today. But, so, I, also, but I also think, yeah, I, I also think as I just go on, it's just to say that 
No, character of Rasputin in this book, which is also connected, is, is also very different from what we'd read before. We always, he was always treated as if he was purely there because he could cure the healing of the boy, Alexei, who had hemophilia, as, you know, as everyone knows. But there was much more to him than that. I mean, he was really um, the psychiatrist, the priest, the advisor, the comforter of the couple themselves, Nicholas and Alexandra. And he also, in his person, was the authentic justification of Nicholas and Alexandra's view of themselves as monarchs. They believed that the Russian monarchy, the Tsar, ruled in a sort of in a mystical um, partnership with the Russian peasantry. And here was a Russian peasant, peasant who told them that. And so that was very important. So he's also a fascinating character. Of course, his sex life is completely wild as well. And we go into that in great detail. And that ruling in that manner had validity and value. Yes. I mean, they believed that um, they didn't need the sort of westernized, um, cultured uh, middle class and nobility in Petersburg, which they regarded as decadent and European. And they were convinced that, and Rasputin confirmed this to them, that, um, that, that they, all they needed was to be sacred czars and that they could rule and they would be supported by the peasantry. And actually, until, until 1917, it looked like that was that was the case and they they believed that was the case but of course all the sort of everything that was blamed on Rasputin um, you know the, the appalling political choices the, the the comical farcical government by by Nicholas and Alexander during World War One this was all blamed on Rasputin but in fact it was totally their decisions it was Nicholas and Alexander's fault and the murder of Rasputin changed nothing and the murder itself which I go into in great detail First of all, the British, the British Secret Service almost certainly played some role in it, which is fascinating. But secondly, you realize when you look into the murder of Rasputin, we'd always been told that, you know, he breathed under water. He was poisoned and he got up again. He, he was shot and he got up again. And he wouldn't die. Actually, that was, a sort of, that was the story spread by Prince Yusupov, his murderer, to sort of justify killing this kind of beast. But in fact, Rasputin was shot twice. And when he fell down, somebody went up to him and literally put a pistol against his forehead and killed him point blank. So he was just kind of, he was just killed in cold blood. So it's a horrible story, in fact, the death of Rasputin. And it changed nothing. So let's focus on Putin for, for a little bit. Um, you write, in his Russian exceptionalism, imperialistic pride, domestic conservatism, personal rule, and successful international aggression, Putin most resembles Tsar Nicholas I with his policies of autocracy, orthodoxy, and nationality. Yes. I mean, yeah, he's a very, I mean, Putin is, Putin is a very Romanov figure. And you say he placed Russia at the center of world affairs again while neglecting to reform. So can you expand on that a little bit, that idea? Yes. I mean, it's interesting, you know, the, the dilemmas I, I said earlier that, you know, how, how the way that sort of the clique, the, the tiny clique that rules Russia works is so similar under the Tsars, under Stalin and under Putin. And um, even though so much of the technology, you know, the Internet, television has changed, some things are the same. Um, the dilemmas of Russian autocracy are the same too. The um, the way that um, the way that it's very tempting to provide excitement abroad, glory abroad is so much part of being a Russian autocrat. But it's very expensive to do that, and you need a, you need an economy. But to liberate the economy, you have to liberate the sources the sources of of, of um, the sources of wealth 
and society itself. And that has always been the dilemma of Russian society. It's like, it's like you know, how to do that without losing the autocracy. And it's very alarming to take that risk. It's too alarming, too dangerous. And so Putin has not really reformed Russian economy or infrastructure or, or, you know, or industry at all. All he's done is just keep it the same and, um, and pursue great adventures abroad with great success, I should say, and an immense shrewdness. You know, he used to be regarded as a sort of accidental czar, accidental president. In fact, you know, no one, no one survives with such success on the Russian throne for 17 years um, without being an incredibly talented statesman, and he is definitely that. And what do you see Putin and Russia being after in, in America and on the world stage currently? Um, well, I mean, I mean, it, it is most kind of basic. Their policy is, you know, their policy, they decided long ago that, you know, anything anti-American is, is good for Russia. And so they've worked systematically to sort of to back every single um, regime that is against the interests of, um, of America. So, you know, Iran um, is classic, you know, it's classic. It's just, they, you know, they will back the Iran regime because it's anti-American and so on. I mean, the Middle East, um, they've always backed anti, you know, they've always backed um, in Syria, they, they, you know, um, they've defied American power. So that's part of it. Um, but another part of it is a sort of cultural mission, which is present throughout this book and throughout Russian history, which is Russia's, you know, Russian, Russian exceptionalism, Russian specialness, Russia's unique nature as a sort of civilizing imperial power. And so that's another part of it. Um, and then another thing is, another part of it is restoring the, 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 the prestige and power of the Russian state, which is always, you know, as we started off discussing, been linked to the expansion of Russia and the expansion of Russian power. Um, and this is very, a very old fashioned idea because not, not many countries today really regard many measure power in terms of sort of territorial size. Um, and, and yet they do, you know, they, they still believe that, you know, Russian, Russia can only be a great power if there's a weak or controlled Ukraine next door, for example, um, if they control the, the um, Caucasus in effect. So, you know, some of these ideas are kind of sensible and some of them are old fashioned. Um, but all of them are also linked with another thread, which is real contempt for the hypocrisy and weakness of democracy. And it, with the emphasis on hypocrisy and, you know, they regard all the humanitarian interventions of America in the 20th century, except, except for the, except for the World War II, of course, um, they regard all those as kind of absolute hypocrisy, um, shield, you know, concealing, you know, under the uh, veil of, and the facade of, of humanitarian morality, um, just, just the pursuit of power and money. And so, they, to, to, in answer to that, to, 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 to um, confront that, they see, it as, they see it as their mission to weaken the West wherever possible. And the best way to do that is to undermine trust in democracy. And that is what they've done um, so well. And this is really something that doesn't come from the Romanovs, but comes from, um, comes from the Soviet period, where um, Lenin and Stalin and the, and the secret police understood so well um, how to um, use provocatio and compromat and disinformation to undermine our idea of the truth and our belief in the legitimacy of democracy. And now in the age of the internet 
um, television. They have, they, have, they have done this so well. They understand it so much better than we do. Even though the internet was, has really been invented in, in Silicon Valley in America, America is so far behind in understanding how to manipulate it. And they are way ahead of it. And of course, this has worked with terrible um, success in the last couple of years. And I think the Russians must just be, just, 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 just be laughing in amazement that they have pulled off without even, I don't believe that for a second President Putin ever believed that they would actually, that Trump would actually win the election. But they, they, hoped, they hoped to undermine the, the process as much as possible. But, you know, to believe that in the first place they could, that Trump would win and make a mockery of Western democracy, in the second place that he would almost immediately fall out with his security services in such a big way that he did. I mean, that was the greatest coup in Russian military, in Russian intelligence, in all of history. And then as it continues today, you know, even, even yesterday, I think President Putin was laughing, laughing at America. I mean, that's a terrible thing to happen. Well, and and also, I mean, you're absolutely right in the just yesterday, a a comment by Putin and his aides in referring to the New York Times and the Washington Post as, you know, those discredited journalists. And you think, all right, yeah, you know, with with a straight face. Exactly. Um, You know, we've got um, so, you know, they've just and of course, you know, Donald Trump weirdly has has played into it, has played into their hands so badly by misunderstanding the nature of, of political power so badly by, by adopting, by using the sort of idea of sort of false news. He was accused of it originally, then adopted calling it everything else false news. He's actually undermined his own coinage, if you like, so badly. Um, so I think the damage from, from this will, will, will continue for a long time. So and, I it, and it's tragic. Again, focus just a little bit in the last few minutes on Russia's endgame, because there's mm. this interesting thread that you mentioned in the idea of these kind of conflicting elements of a Russian personality as a, as a um, mm. entity, as far as nobility and wanting to have power and sort of power over everything near and far. And yet it is um, looked at in America as, you know, what a terrible thing trying to grab for power. And yet mm. somehow it seems that Russia has an idea through history that they're doing it more nobly or for a more noble cause. Well, and that's, well, the, well, the irony of this is that you know, these, are, these are two countries that, you know, these are two countries that more than any other really have a, have a, have a vision of their own exceptionalism and their own way, their own cultural, political way and personality. And do you think I mean, also... America, America has that too. America has the other country that has that so strongly, isn't it? But do you think post-World War II that America still has an expansionism ideal and... and or, or is it just no, no, no? no and, I don't and think does it's Russia? Since, since, since the since the sort of since Teddy the time of Teddy Roosevelt, um, you know. Um, but I, I think that um, Russia still does, and that's what I, I was saying. It's a very old-fashioned concept. Um, but as sort of the end game, you know, I think their aim is to restore Russian power, um, partly for its own sake, um, partly because um, they know no other way. This is the way they. This is the way they've been taught. And, and perhaps this is a good way to come full circle because, you know, President Putin looks at Russian history um, in terms of successful rulers, um, in terms of the strength of the Russian state. He doesn't look at it in ideology. So 
he regards great Russian Tsars as, you know, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, Nicholas the First, Alexander the First. And he regards, uh, and, and Stalin, of course, probably the most successful of all. Um, and then he regards, you know, you know weak Russian Tsars, failed Russian Tsars, as, as the, the worst, as Gorbachev and Nicholas II. So, you know, he, he, he's measuring himself against these, um, against these, these ideas. And I think actually there's a poverty of ideas in Russian statesmanship. I'm not sure they have an end game. They're just amazed at how far they've got. But as has always happened in the Russian, in the Russian autocracy, um, you know, at some point they're going to, they're going to go too far. They're going to run out of money. They're going to, the, the Russian state is you know, it's so old fashioned now. The economy is so small. I mean, it's, it's the same size as Spain's economy. So, um, so Russia does not have the sort of the engine needed to fuel a real a, a real international superpower, and yet um, they're muddling through. And I think they're, they're I think that they're brilliant improvisers. They're incredibly pragmatic, but um, but I don't think they know where they're going. And I think they're amazed they've got this far. And so, would success maybe be not the economic success, success that it would be what Americans might judge success as, but maybe that they've got their hands on the levers and the levers throughout the world? I think that is success. I mean, I think this, as I, as I said, I mean, even in the, I don't think even in the, even in superpowerdom in the time of Stalin, um, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the height of the Soviet Union, I don't think that they'd ever had such successes as they're having now um, in, in America. And I think, um, they must, I think they must be utterly astonished about what's happening. You know, considering that this is such a, this is actually, I mean, you can exaggerate the influence of Russia in all this, by the way. And I think, you know, we have done. We're giving them, we're giving them much too much credit. I mean, we, you know, the American people elected Donald Trump and gave, gave Russia this great triumph. And... Um, but you know, I don't think I don't. You know, but anyway, but but the, the Russians have never achieved such a success as this. Well, sitting in Britain, I think you've got a good seat for the show. Yes. Well, this is a fascinating time. I'm tell you, I'm absolutely gripped, and and it's and it's been it's great fun talking to you. Well, thank you so much for joining us on that. Got me thinking. An absolute pleasure. And the book is is a must read. I think for everyone in in our country and maybe the rest of the world. Well, thank you so much. It's lovely talking to you. And I love America, so I'm dying to come over there. Um, And I'll be over there soon, I'm sure. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Simon. Really great talking with you. And again, just on a side, like so enlightening, I think growing up um, in the Cold War as an American, I mean, our educational system, not the best. Anyway, my mom was British. And, you know, every day home from school, she was aghast at what we had learned and hadn't learned. But that we really just saw Russia as this competitor enemy, and I think never learned much history whatsoever about them. And so don't really understand the workings and the motivations and the people there. Yes, well, I hope that's one of the aims of this book is partly to tell a great story of this saga of of tyrants and monsters and maniacs, but also just to explain how Russia became the Russia of today. And we all need to know that now more than ever. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.